Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you, as always, for listening and got a lot of great stuff coming up in this episode for you today. A lot of line coming your way. We know that's one of the most popular things we do. And we've got a great panel again this week for you, starting with regular Serge Martinez. He's also an attorney. Uh, and a law professor at the University of New Mexico, I should say. Uh, with him, Ed Perea, an attorney and a public safety consultant, and Giovanna Rossa. Rossi, we always love to have her as part of the table. She is with Collective Action Strategies. And we're going to jump right into the big day. We've all been waiting for this. It's coming up next week, July 1st. Marks the full official reopening of New Mexico after more than 15 months of public health restrictions due to COVID-19. This is the date that the governor announced after we uh, nearly got to her goal of 60% of the state's population at full vaccination, which means two doses uh, for the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, one dose for Johnson & Johnson, plus the two weeks for those to reach maximum efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, again, we didn't quite, we were within a percentage point of that, uh, but she decided to go ahead and open the doors up fully. Uh, of course, we're hearing about the Delta variant. Uh, the line panelists are going to talk about that and how it, that impacts the decision to go ahead and open up the economy. But again, this is a day lots of folks have been waiting for. It does not by any means mean that COVID is over or that all of the issues around COVID are answered. Uh, we dive into all that now with host Gene Grant and the line opinion panel. We finally hit the 60% mark this week for fully vaccinated New Mexicans, saving face for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's choice to move ahead with her plan to reopen New Mexico on July 1st. That means no more occupancy or public gathering restrictions. And of course, only those who have been, not been vaccinated will still be required to wear masks. Now, those restrictions have been in place now in some form or fashion since March of 2020. That's 15 months ago. Here to discuss what it all means in this week's virtual line opinion panel. We'll start with line regular and UNM, uh, UNM law school professor Serge Martinez. Welcome back, Serge. We're also joined by attorney and public safety consultant Ed Perea. And rounding out our Zoom group this week is Giovanna Rossi, president of Collective Action Strategies. Welcome back, Giovanna. We're just shy of that 60% vaccination threshold yeah. when the governor acted, Serge. Here's my question. Do you agree with the governor's decision to basically say, eh, close enough? Or should we have put this off a week or two to really just get there? Uh, you know, I think... Six, there was nothing magical about 60%. It was somewhat arbitrary. We were pretty close. I think uh, from a practical standpoint, mm -hmm. pushing this off any further would be, you know, uh, politically ill-advised and untenable. Uh, it is, you know, I don't know how much difference it might even make in most people's day-to-day -day lives to say we're open now. Right. Um, but I think pushing it off any further, I can't believe it lasted as long as it did, frankly. Mm -hmm. And to say, we're six tenths of a percentage point off. We're going to push this off. Would have been, they'd be rioting in the streets. I would imagine. Well, people were ready to go. There's no doubt on that. Ed Perea, you know, interestingly, 
New Mexico had one of the earliest, most restrictive public health orders, as you know, in the country. Our vaccination rollout, one of the most successful in the country, as you know. Um, you know, but what are you going to be looking for down the line here? I mean, are, should we keep the push? Should we just let nature take its course? How should we handle this from this point forward? You know, I, I think all along we, we have to take this virus virus seriously, and, and I think many people have. Um, many entities have taken it seriously. We see the ramifications of not taking something of this uh, of this sort uh, seriously. We know that there are variants out there. We know that there's the Delta variant that of the new infections, I think the United Kingdom, 90% of those people are being inflicted by this Delta variant. And here in the United States, it's 20%. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what this virus is going to do yet. And it's probably would best serve our society if we ear to the side of caution. And let's not be too quick to get out there and, and get back to whatever that normal is. I've heard the term a new normal uh, used, and, and I'm still not sure exactly what that is. I think there's more to come, but I think we really ought to continue to approach this cautiously. Uh, this virus is, is dangerous, as it's been proven to be. And so let's take our time and be prudent with all the decisions, whether personally or, or, or as, a, as a society, mm -hmm. as to how we approach mm -hmm. and move mm -hmm. forward from here. Good point there. Giovanna, you know, this idea, I just want to continue with, you know, what was the right way to go here? It's easy to look back, certainly, in anything in life, but was the governor on track here? I mean, there's a balance here between opening businesses, getting the economy going, and keeping us safe. Certainly, did she wait too long? Should we have waited for that 60% threshold? Where do you come down on this? I mean, I think the governor's done a really good job at managing this whole thing. Uh, it's a tough decision. It's been a long time. People are really ready for it to be over. Um, I think no matter what she does, there's going to be criticism <clears throat> on both sides. But <clears throat> I think she did a great job with, you know, setting a goal. Like like Serge said, it, you know, the 60% is a little bit arbitrary. It, it's a great number to go for. Um, it was important for her to have a goal and to show, you know, real commitment and hard work to get there, which which she did and, and the, the state did. Um, you know, for me, as as a parent of small of young children, mm -hmm. it's it, it's a little bit of a different um, feeling for me. I, I don't, you know, the opening up doesn't mean what it, it for me what it means for other people. Probably, um, I have one child who's completely vaccinated, a twelve year old, and I have one who's nine and is you know not vaccinated at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and with the Delta variant predicted to be the predominant. A variant by August here. That's right. Um, that's pretty scary. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like, fine, great. Let's open up July 1st. However, I will still be wearing a mask with my daughter mm -hmm. and I am worried about school uh, still, you know, like school is supposed to open back up in August. And like, I haven't really heard much of anything um, about that. I think there's a whole big conversation um, that's, that needs to happen there. I would agree with that. Yeah, Serge, interestingly, um, there's so many questions. How will businesses know if someone's vaccinated or not? <laughs> require them to wear a mask walking in the door? How does that work? But the, I mean, obviously, right, you, you can either be vaccinated or just lie about it and no one knows. And right. what, you know, I think when I said a lot of folks, they're, you know, it won't change their lives or their behavior, right? Folks like Giovanna, who are very concerned, will continue to take the precautions that they would have taken anyway. Just you know, saying that 
we're open doesn't mean, okay, no one takes precautions, no one wears masks. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, the people who are concerned um, will continue to be concerned and mm -hmm. take precautions or should do. Serge, right? you know, uh, Giovanna just brought up UNM. I'm uh, sorry, my fault there, Serge. Uh, Giovanna just brought up UNM. And, you know, there's still some question about whether students and everybody else walking on campus is going to have to be vaccinated and prove it to come back on campus. What's your sense of that? I'm not asking you to speak for the university, certainly, or the <laughs> law school. Don't, don't worry there. But you know, what's your, yeah. personal, your personal sense of it? Yeah, I mean, I personally think it would be uh, a good move to require anybody who can be vaccinated to be vaccinated, to mm -hmm. be part of the, to you know, take classes, to be part of the university. Proving that, I mean, it probably seems to be fairly straightforward to forge that uh, based on the little, you know, homemade piece of paper I got when I got my vaccines. But I think sending that message that this is a priority for us and you can do whatever you want in your personal life, but if you wanna be part of our system and part of this, then you need to show concern, not just for yourself, but for the rest of us mm -hmm. is perfectly valid and something that I would like to see pushed mm -hmm. here at the university. Ed Perret, I gotta ask, you know, not just the university, but for any other business that's, you know, looking to either let people in or not based on their vaccination, is this a legal ask? Do you know what I'm getting at here? I mean, you can ask, but does it stand up legally uh, if, if somebody doesn't want to comply, basically? And like, people have options, right? Businesses mm -hmm. uh, have, have the choices to what their rules are as, like, as long as they don't violate certain constitutional protections. You know, the question is, uh, is a person does a person have a right to choose whether they wear a mask or not? Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think so. The courts have, have pretty much have ruled on that already. Mm -hmm. So now, although we are opening up fully on July 1, the businesses will still continue to have the option as to what policies they will use for their customers. And if someone chooses not to agree with the policy, they don't have to do business with the business, but mm -hmm. it's definitely within the business's right. But let me back, bounce back to Surge. That's a, you know, a privately held company's one thing, a public institution is a whole nother matter. Does this stand up legally for a public institution like UNM? Uh, great question. I mean, we'll find out in lots of different challenges. Yes, but, we will. You know, we, <laughs> my kids go to a public school and are required to be vaccinated to attend that school, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, it may not, it's not one-to-one, -one, but the, the idea is not altogether unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Giovanna, I got to go back to what you were mentioning about your kids. I think you touched on something that is very relatable for a lot of folks watching this show and all over the country, all over the country, all over our state. For example, Roosevelt County is only 30% vaccinated, if you think about it, <laughs> you know, about opening. Not all places are Bernalillo County or Santa Fe or any place else. We have several counties where the vaccination rate is still very, very low. Does this concern you as a parent because, you know, you cannot silo your children once they're in a school environment? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. It's a mm -hmm. concern. And, and, you know, some, some counties are doing extremely well, 80%. Uh, in some counties, and then we have very low rates in other counties. Um, I think that there has to be a real focus here mm -hmm. for for schools, um, for for opening back up uh, in August. And you know, Bernalillo County, where I live, you know, I, I'm planning for my daughter to attend school like she did at the end of the school year last last school year, mm -hmm. uh, with a mask and all of that. Um, but yeah, some of the some of the counties with lower vaccination rates, it's a real 
concern. And, um, and I'm hoping, I haven't really heard what the plans are, mm. but I'm hoping there are some discussions and, and planning, you know, going on for how, how that's going to happen. I just, I just do want to say though, that, that throughout all of this, um, public health and safety has been number one priority for the governor, which mm -hmm. is great. Mm -hmm. uh, economic prosperity for businesses and families has also been, you know, a concern and a focus, which is great. And I think children have been sort of left out of the, of the conversation mm -hmm. for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really would like to see that change. Hmm. Good points there. That's all the time we have this week for COVID. Up next, the countdown is also in full effect for legalized cannabis in New Mexico. And there are a ton of decisions that go into the June 29th deadline. All right, let's stay with the line opinion panel now uh, for another important date. That's June 29th, Tuesday. That is the day that the Cannabis Regulation Act goes into effect, meaning recreational use cannabis will then be legal in the state of New Mexico although sales will not begin until April of the following year. I want to remind everybody that you are still not able to smoke cannabis in public areas. Uh, so just because it is legal, I want to make that reminder out there for everybody. So many things that go into that date and the start of that law. One of the big ones has to do with how Businesses will be uh, set up and regulated, and last week the Albuquerque City Council was the first really to dive into those waters. Uh, they have uh, certain deadlines, and uh, it fell to them to come up with the planning and zoning ordinances around that, really before the state even has all the rules promulgated and put together. There was about a six-hour meeting of the city council to go through various aspects of those planning and zoning ordinances. And for the most part, the city council uh, really welcomed the cannabis industry with open arms, not a lot of restrictions. There were proposals to put limits in place around uh, churches, uh, to limit the amount of businesses, how close they can be to each other. Lots of things wrapped up in there, but for the most part, the city council uh, limited the number of restrictions and really put in extra protections in place for the micro-businesses that are going to be set up under that act. And so, again, they are the first of many other municipalities will also have to dive into these waters. Uh, the city council did, some of the councilors expressed concerns about making these kinds of decisions before the rules are fully formalized, but... Uh, regulation and Licensing Department Superintendent Linda Trujillo actually had sent out a letter recently to municipalities saying you need to get to work on this so businesses know what to be planning for, what to be expecting. So this thing is moving fast. We knew it would, and we want to turn it over to the line to get their thoughts on whether or not it's moving too fast. Recreational use cannabis will, in fact, be legal in the state in less than a week. Although sales are still months away, Albuquerque sent a strong message to the industry last week after the city council voted on a slew of planning and zoning issues. That message, we're welcoming the industry with open arms. The restrictions on new businesses are fairly minimal, although questions still remain since the state has yet to issue any final rules or procedures. And Ed Perea, cannabis businesses will apparently be able to set up shop on Main Street corridors. We'll talk about what those are, like Knob Hill and Central and all that. 
and there are no restrictions near churches. Are you surprised how accommodating the city, or specifically city council, <laughs> are you surprised how accommodating the city is being so far? I really am. It's a very, very liberal approach to it. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that, uh, that the city is wanting to make these decisions relatively quickly. Uh, yeah. For those who supported this bill, there's a lot of excitement behind it. However, uh, you know, I, I think we need to move just a little slower on this. I mean, there's a lot of decisions that really have to be have to be made. And a lot of people uh, and businesses that will be impacted by it. Mm -hmm. But we know that the council pretty much has opened the door, as you mentioned, G. They've opened the door and said, hey, let this thing let this thing happen. But I think we really have to take into account all those uh, citizens who might be impacted by it, whether it's the religious uh, community or mm -hmm. schools uh, and, and other areas, and even businesses that might be sensitive to uh, having a cannabis outlet near them. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know it sounds interesting, but you know, on this issue, I think we just want to make sure that, that we approach it to is to avoid any unintended consequences with our liberal approach so far to this issue. Mm -hmm. I really think the city council probably needs to hear a little more public comment uh, about the about the potential concerns from members of our community. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there. Giovanna, you know, the only real, real restrictions, they cannot be less, I'm sorry, my fault. One cannabis business cannot be within 600 feet of each other unless one of the businesses applies for a conditional use permit. That conditional use permit situation is interesting. That's always been sort of an interesting football in Albuquerque, <laughs> the conditional use permit. I, I'm dying to see how that one plays out when someone in fact does apply for one of those. But do you have any particular heartburn uh, as a mom, as a of school age kids about cannabis shops in your schools or, or your area? Does that concern you at all? Um, I mean, you know, when we start talking about this, uh, what comes to mind is regulations around liquor establishments and bars. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if they've tried to mirror those, but like certainly I don't really want a bar next to my kid's school, no. Um, and, and so, you know, so maybe not having a cannabis <laughs> store next to the school. Uh, but I don't think that, um, I, I think what I would like to see is for the regulations to really reflect the intent of the legislation, which was really to open up the economy and support small businesses. Mm -hmm. So I know there's a lot of conversation about the large industries coming in and kind of taking over. I would love to see some protections for small business and micro businesses uh -huh. uh, so that we truly can have um, economic prosperity for families and small, you know, small businesses in, in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Serge, interestingly, uh, Giovanna just teed it up beautifully. The council was also very concerned about the social equity issues that the sponsors mm -hmm. of the Cannabis Regulation Act talked about all along. Specifically, they wanted to make sure that micro-businesses, as Giovanna just mentioned, have exemptions from just about all those restrictions that are in place. Prudent policy and overreach, a good place to start. What was your, what's your sense of that? Well, I think it is prudent policy. Mm -hmm. And as Giovanna said, it's, it's consistent with the, the idea behind this legislation, which is to you know, boost our economy and also not exclude New Mexicans who don't have tons of capital from right. this 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 industry right so mm -hmm. i think that that is an absolutely appropriate use of this i get um i get concerned when i hear zoning ever because it's usually code for secret racism or often can be mm -hmm. right racism and discrimination hidden in, in plain sight i think the city council 
Uh, I agree with Ed, right? They acted very quickly. This probably would have been better for more discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the mayor's proposals here were, I think, overly restrictive and went too far. But out of concerns of let's, you know, the mayor's office says we didn't want to put all of these businesses in the same low income neighborhoods and concentrate them in clusters that all the things get put into uh, around town. Mm -hmm. I get that. This is a really, really challenging and interesting question. And Albuquerque is the first to wade in, but we're going to see this play out hundreds of times across the state. That's right. And not with places that where it's as popular as it is here in, in uh, Albuquerque. And mm -hmm. I suspect there will be many, many challenges and fights over this that are much, much more brutal than the ones we've seen here. Mm -hmm. Ed, Can uh, I add to that? Please, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would just say, just to underscore that, uh, comments, Serge, and to say that I would love to see um, a real commitment on, on the part of city council and other, you know, lawmaking bodies um, to, to do an analysis of proposals that includes an equity lens, that includes an economic prosperity lens, that includes a health and safety lens. Um, years ago, straight out of graduate school, I was a policy analyst for the LUX committee, the, the Land Use Planning and Zoning Committee, and uh, and it would have been great to have had some tools like that to say, you know, actually, this is what this really means in mm -hmm. terms of equity. This is what this really means in terms of health and safety and economic prosperity. I would love to see those tools really being applied. Mm -hmm. Good stuff there. That might come. You never know. You know, we do it here sometimes. Those things kind of follow after we put things in process. Hey, Ed Perea, you know, interesting, the city council rejected nearly all the amendments proposed by the mayor and his administration. As, as uh, Serge just mentioned, wanted to keep cannabis businesses off those Main Street corridors. And the administration says they were responding to the public survey they conducted, but the public comment in the meeting seemed to run completely counter to that survey. It, was the mayor's office just completely out of touch here? I mean, how can one body have it and the other body just completely just not be there? Well, and I think, you know, you look at two different methods of obtaining information, so mm -hmm. the public comment and the survey, and how reliable were those two methods, right? Did you have really a cross-section? Who are those individuals that were making public comment? Thank well, you. those are self-interested. And who did you survey? And was it a scientific mm -hmm. survey? And, and really, is it something that would stand up as far as validity and reliability? So whenever we talk surveys and public comment, you, you have to take those with a grain of salt and take a step back and look at it. Maybe the bigger picture, maybe, and I'm not sure whether the administration did this, but maybe the administration should commission a broad-based uh, uh, an assessment analysis and survey by some of the professional individuals around here that, that do that type of work mm -hmm. with margins of errors of you know two two to three percent, and and that way I think you get a, a better measurement. But if we're throwing out this idea, we did a survey, and we, the surveys are done all the time. We, I get those in my emails all the time. We want you to answer this, but who are those people that are being asked and, and it is interesting and to Giovanna's point I really think that there needs to be a little more work a little more analysis as to mm -hmm. uh, and, and as far as the decisions that are being that are being made here and, and there's going to be something that will be hard to move once they're put into place right you know I know they can revisit year in a year or so uh, as problems arise but I'd say let's fix it up front um, before we get these these uh, these policies and, and regulations in place it might save a whole lot of people a lot of time and money in the long run well, RLD Superintendent Linda Trujillo, she sent a letter to the Municipal League and telling cities and munis to get going here. <laughs> we got to get this thing moving. 
You've heard us talk about it a lot here on this podcast, but we have another podcast that we do in collaboration with New Mexico Political Report. It's called Growing Forward, and it's all about the cannabis industry and this brave new world we are venturing into. The co-hosts are Andy Lyman from the Political Report and our very own Megan Kamrick, also an on-air host at KUNM. We are hard at work getting interviews together for Season 3, which will be coming your way soon. In just a matter of weeks, we'll be kicking that off. One of the interviews we did recently was with Donna Anna County Sheriff Kim Stewart. We wanted to find out how they will be approaching cannabis issues and how they have in the interim even since the law was passed. But again, legalization happens officially on Tuesday. And it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, Many times, as we learned in the past, police and also law enforcement officials, legal officials, uh, use cannabis as a probable cause to search out other things. Uh, And in terms of probable cause, just the smell is a big tip-off there. That's one of the big changes you will hear her talk about. That's off the table now. And so this really will change the way law enforcement uh, operations function moving forward and uh, there are still lots of enforcement issues things about whether or not people have too many plants if they have a license to home grow and so we wanted to talk to her a little bit about that here is just a taste but again be looking out for the growing forward season three coming to you soon subscribe now if you haven't already and go back and listen to some of those past episodes a lot of great reporting being done there. But here now again, Donya Anna County Sheriff Kim Stewart. Sheriff, cannabis possession and use will officially be legal on June 29th. And home cultivation uh, will also be legal. But of course, sanctioned sales uh, won't start until next year. What's the plan for your office moving forward? And what kind of priorities are you putting on things like illicit sales or purchases? Well, thank you for inviting me uh, today to discuss this important topic. Uh, You know, I did some research uh, regarding other states once they began the process to legalize or to um, begin to prepare for legalization. And um, I realized that uh, law enforcement itself has to make some early on decisions. So, uh, For instance, uh, at this point, we would probably stop all um, uh, cases involving small amounts. You know, we have an amount right now that if I believe under an ounce, uh, it's a civil penalty, correct? Uh, But all probably unless it was a sizable amount uh, of uh, cannabis, for some reason we came in contact with, we would not do those prosecutions. We would certainly seize uh, the cannabis as a found property for destruction. Uh, But you have to begin to look at the fact that cases made now, obviously the DA will not prosecute and they will come up largely after June. So you begin to uh, think about what does this mean? Uh, The other thing we're we're doing and is uh, telling my uh, uniforms and our our narcotics officers to start putting out of your mind developing probable cause off a voter right that's a that's a uh, that's a go-to that we've had for so long you have to begin the process of thinking differently the other thing is 
um, when we get to uh, drugged driving, uh, we, we can't make roadside uh, decisions about uh, use of cannabis and impairment. So we have to begin to use what are called drug recognition experts more. And uh, we're getting that out to our uh, uniforms now to begin to think differently. June 29th is not very far away. So uh, these are things that when I did some research on these other states, they actually had more time to prepare than we do. Uh, but this is going to be a change in how we've been doing business for decades. Can I certainly can I, before can I, my time? Can I ask a quick follow up about the impairment issue? So, um, can you talk a little bit more about what your officers will be doing around that and how that's going to work? I know that was an ongoing concern by people, and I'm just curious what that looks like. Yeah, there. You know, there are companies right now that are trying to uh, promote a roadside test for cannabis, and there's nothing that really is uh, tested enough or is reliable enough for us to invest in that. Well, but know that there's a whole industry out there that would love to be able to do something similar to a breathalyzer, right, uh, and toxilizer uh, at the roadside. So they're going to have to rely a lot more on objective symptoms. And again, can't use odor. It, you could say, well, you know, red eyes or uh, sort of a flat affect or very uh, diminished uh, energy or that type of thing. Well, again, that also could reflect alcohol intoxication. In fact, it closely mirrors it, right? You may not have a level of aggression that you might have with uh, alcohol impairment, but you certainly would have objective symptomology. So I think what has happened, I, I've read that's happened in these other states is they've just focused on alcohol impairment. And even though the use and possession of cannabis will soon be legal, smoking it in public will still be illegal along with unauthorized right. sales. And there are some penalties for things like that in the new law. So what kind of guidance are you giving your officers in terms of enforcement of things like giving or selling cannabis to a minor or using it in public? I think, I think where we're going to get the calls, uh, this is just, again, from what I anecdotally have seen. It's from the school. The schools are going to be calling us saying, uh, Johnny or Jane has shown up today and they're reeking with the odor of, of cannabis. Okay. And Johnny or Jane has said that, well, my parents grow it and my parents use it. And I am reeking of it because I come out of that household. Okay you're going to have to decide then oh, as, as where, do, where do we get involved with looking into the welfare of a child, right? Do, do we take that kind of thing uh, seriously? Uh, should we, you know, there's really no guidance about that. So I've told my people, that let's get ready for uh, being called from the school uh, we're not going to be going out on, uh, I, I smell, you know, plants in my neighbor's yard. We're not going to be going out on that because theoretically that's an RLD issue. You know, they say they're in charge of enforcement. Okay. So some of that is going to have to fall into their laps. And uh, so there are going to be, um, we're going to choose in those senses what we do, but I'm not going on big grow houses and 
counting the number of plants and checking uh, to see that their license matches what's in the grow house. Not doing that, not doing that. Something else we didn't have time for in the show this week, we want to bring it to you here. The Bernalillo County Commission this week was tasked with finding a replacement for State Representative Melanie Stansberry. You may remember she won the special election to replace Deb Holland in the U.S. House of Representatives when Deb Holland was named the Secretary of the Department of the Interior. There was about eight folks who threw their hat in the ring uh, for to serve out the rest of Melanie Stansberry's term. And the Bernalillo County Commission decided this week that the person who would do that is Pamela Herndon. She is someone that we have talked to a lot on the show in recent weeks and months and years. We love having Pamela on, and so we wanted to uh, jump on Facebook Live with her this week, find out why she wanted to fill this out and potentially serve in that seat beyond the rest of Melanie Stansberry's term. She'll be up for re-election next year in the midterm elections. But uh, here she is talking to host Jean Grant this week on Facebook Live. Very pleased to bring on our new representative for District 28 in the, in the New Mexico legislature. That would be Pamela Herndon, who last night was appointed so in a 4-0 vote by the Bernalillo County Commission. A fifth vote, Debbie O'Malley, was absent. First of all, congratulations, Madam Representative, and how's it feel? You know, it feels absolutely great. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, just knowing that I'm in a, in a great district and I'm gonna be helping lots and lots of people and being their voice. Sounds good. I wanna to get to some of that as well, because now obviously a page is turned. It's time to kind of get to work for the district, as they say. But was interesting to watch, you know, for folks, again, who might be watching this and catching up with our process, when someone vacates an office in our system, people assume it's the governor who makes that appointment. No, it's the, the county commission in which that, the county in which that uh, seat sits. And there was a public discussion. It was pretty vigorous. Uh, the other candidates, uh, I should say there were seven other candidates, eight originally, uh, seven at the end there. Your sense of where you thought the vote would come down, meaning I'm not looking for you if you had a prediction last night, but clearly you wanted to do this and, you know, at some point you have to make an appeal to folks to have that kind of vote come in. Talk about what your, what your goal was with that. You know, as I, I sat there and listened to many, many well-qualified candidates as we were all vying for this one position, mm -hmm. I was trying to determine what distinguished me from the other candidates. And one of the things that I, that I thought would really resonate well, because this is a budget session that's coming up, is my incredible background in, in tax and in budgeting. And so those items would be uh, really very important as we get ready to go into a budget session. And then not only that, but all of my years in dealing with the legislature and uh, having either working on writing legislation or advocating for some legislation to be written, that those items were the ones that were going to uh, actually bring me to a different level than the other members who had who were on the uh, part of that group that was seeking the appointment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, interestingly, um, when I use the finger quotes campaign, you didn't necessarily have to campaign by going door to door. But my sense is you were out there on a bit of a listening tour, if I could use that phrase. I mean, I got it. my sense was you were trying to get a feel for the district and what folks wanted. What did you come away with? You know, it, it was really interesting. It's a variety of things that people needed. 
but but number one item, of course, is always crime. People are worried about crime and how do we reduce it? Well, as I went on this journey, and my husband and I often go out for a walk in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I ran into a, a person in the neighborhood, and he said, you know, for the first time in history, I had left my car unlocked. And when I came out the next morning, he said, oh, the contents of my car were gone and the car had been ransacked. And he said, what are we going to do about it? And so I, you know, I thought, I thought it was interesting that I would be asked the question. I wasn't a representative at the time, but mm-hmm. I've been highly engaged in the neighborhood and been an advocate. Mm-hmm. And so as I looked at our street, our street has absolutely no street light on it. And as I walked down other streets within our uh, community, there are no street lights on any of the streets. There are streets that face the major thoroughfares like maybe Lomas or Tramway or Juan Tabot. But where the houses are, they're not there, Gene. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying, how were, what was the thought process when they were putting this together? And then, of course, I started doing a little bit of research and looking at, at what Arizona State University had done in terms of uh, the effect of streetlights and putting light in area and how that reduced crime. I said, you know, that's what we need to go after. And so what I'm thinking will work will you know, looking for capital outlay money to give to the counties and to the cities and say, mm-hmm. go put some street lights in there. But let me tell you about one other thing that Please. came up since that time. Mm-hmm. I ran into a, a man who actually works for the city and his role is trying to prohibit uh, recidivism or to keep people from going back into the, to the uh, penal system. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think and love about his job is he talks to people and he has conversations with them so that they don't reenact the type of uh, criminal activity that they've been involved in. That is another way to reduce crime, give mm-hmm. people a reason not to be involved in crime and let them know that there's somebody who cares about them. And I just thought that was absolutely wonderful. I didn't even know the program was there. And that's something that I think we need to build on and continue to um, enhance. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting, you know, doing a little research to get ready to talk to you, of course, looking at the district, fantastically diverse when you think about it. It's, you know, when you're talking east of Tramway, that's a vastly different economic situation than down near Morris and, and other parts of, of District 28. Can, what's the challenge to stitch all that together? Because there's no, I, I, unless I'm missing something, there's no one common thread in District 28 outside of crime you just spoke about where I think folks would be at completely. Is that, does that pose a challenge? It is. You know, the, the, the district itself is completely uh, diverse. It's diverse both culturally and economically. And so trying to uh, make sure that all of these voices are heard will be a challenge. But what I intend to do is to have a number of town halls because they are very different. Mm-hmm. So some of the people may be in closer to the Morris area, the uh, Morris Street area and closer to Central may be more concerned about evictions and what's happening to them because mm-hmm. there was a loss of job or reduction in work hours. Where uh, uh, if I look closer to Tramway and um, I'm sorry, and, and yeah, Tramway and, and, and Montgomery and the mm-hmm. area up toward the East Mountains, maybe the more the concern is about the environment. And then right. how do we have environmental protections that are in place? And so those are the kind of areas that we are looking at. But but another common area, Gene, was looking at education. If you started looking at these statistics of what's happening with respect to our school children, when they're coming through the grades 9th through 12th, we're not seeing a 100% graduation rate. And why aren't we? 
So that was always a concern among people, the education. They want everybody in our state and in our district to get that same level of education, not 25% being at competency level and the other 75 not being at it. So that's something else that we work on, like how do we feed and support the Department of Education so that they're working on raising the well-being of our children. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that district, of course, um, I'm not being flip when I say this, but there's a whole lot of conservatives or Republicans or whatever you want to call it in that district as well. And you just came through a system where, of course, they did not necessarily get a chance to weigh in on their votes, if, if you get my drift here. How do, how do you reassure those folks that this is not about party, but you're about representation for all, everybody there? You know, one of the things that, and, and people ask that a lot. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions, one of the things that I point out to people is that I've been involved in, um, in advocacy for, for the people for a long time. One of the things that I was involved in was, for example, making sure that people were enrolled in the, in the Affordable Care Act. And it didn't matter what side of the political spectrum they were on. My role was to make sure that they got enrolled in health insurance. When we started looking at the census and I was engaged as a project leader there, one of the things that we always looked at is getting people counted because the resources in our state and in our communities were based on the number of people. It didn't matter what their political uh, view was. So I keep telling people that's the way we're going to work together. And, and I just want to point out one other thing. As I was working uh, a couple of years ago when Melanie Stansberry, who actually had this position before me, one of the things that she did is, uh, and I worked with her on that campaign, is we knocked on doors and we talked to people. We didn't ask them what their political affiliation was, whether they were a conservative or liberal, but what was the issues or what were the issues they were concerned about? And those were very rich conversations. So I intend to do that. My goal, Gene, and maybe you'll come around with me on some of those, is to knock on every single door in our district and have a conversation with every single person. And so that's what I want to do because as I always stated, my goal is to be a strong voice for our district. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no small amount of business in your district as well. Retail, there's a couple of really strong clusters that have been there. I'm going to call them legacy areas for business. They've been around a long, long, long time. Any particular nod towards business folks there? We're coming out of a situation here, obviously with the pandemic, where folks really need to get up to speed business-wise. Any, any sense of where you want to go for, to help those folks? So I, I do. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been looking at is looking at apprenticeship programs and uh, how we can advance those within our district. Mm-hmm. And I know that looking at the Department of Labor, particularly the Federal Department of Labor, that what they do is they offer incentives, or financial incentives to states to help them with these types of programs. I want companies to be willing to invest in apprenticeship programs and then to be able to support them financially as they bring on people through these apprenticeship programs and help them grow. And, you know, I think that together I'm looking at programs that will benefit both the individuals and the businesses to show how they work together to make our uh, our district as strong as possible. You've worked a lot, of course, and I've seen this described a lot of different ways, the big bucket called social justice. <laughs> a lot of folks have got you pinned a couple of different ways I've noticed in the press. Uh, how would you describe yourself when it comes to social justice and how you want to apply it? on an everyday basis in your district? So, you know, when I look at social justice, it, it applies very differently to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. So not, as, not necessarily everything to the same person. 
Uh, when I look at a group of women, of course, the social justice issues become, am I being paid what I should be paid? And am I, how do I get to where I want to, want to be? If I look at social justice with respect to other people, for example, with the environment, and they're concerned about the, about the carbon footprint that is being left. And so I sort of look at the social justice aspect of what do we do there? And I, we try to work out a plan, for example, where people don't leave a carbon footprint at least once a month. I want you to walk. I want you to ride your bicycle. So, Gina, I'm going to count telling you to uh, be a part of this, oh, yeah. uh, that you participate in some other form of transportation that isn't using petroleum, because we have to figure out how to make that work. And that another item that we look at is sort of looking at the water and taking data on the water within our state. So that we can see how much do we actually have, and we're keeping a record of it, not in a in a um, in a jagged position, but in a way that we are uniformly looking at what does our water source look like. Because we're in the desert, where people may not believe it, but we have to find out ways that we are conserving more. And those, and that's social justice for somebody else. So it's going to be the the people that we're looking at. But yes, I'm going to continue to be a social justice advocate in many many ways. Mm -hmm. Goes without saying, another African-American woman in our state legislature is no small thing. I mean, I have to tip my hat, obviously, to you on that. It's a big change. Where, where, where do you see that fitting in? You know, we've got a little bit of momentum here as an African-American community, and, and things like your appointment are no small thing when you're talking about the percentages of us here. It, it really means something. How, what's your sense of that? So, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to say that we're, we're almost at the percentage of our numbers within the state. Right. So we, we, rec we represent about um, just about 3% of the entire state's population. And so if we look at 2.1 million as being, the, as being the population itself, we're, we're almost there. Mm -hmm. And so that the voices of what's happening that have, for the African-American community that has been silent for far too long, I know that we've had uh, two African-American representatives there, but they can't do it alone. And so now there are stronger voices so that we can have many more conversations to say, you know, look, these are issues of a, of a particular part of our community that has been a strong voting block and been highly engaged in the operations of our state. And so we want to make sure that their voices are heard and you've got to help us lift it up. So I'm happy to be able to be a part of that. It's going to be really exciting. So there are lots of really uh, great parts and trying to see how each piece is gonna fit together to make a, a better New Mexico is something I, I, I'm just really excited about doing and being a part of. Sounds great. Representative Pamela Herndon, thank you very much for spending some time with us. It's a brand new world for you, obviously. And I yes. want folks to know you're official now. You don't need the, you don't have to put your hand in the Bible in front of the governor or anything. This, <laughs> no. It's done. <laughs> I just I just have to find it, sign a couple of papers so that uh, I can get some credentials showing that I really am there. But right. other than that, it's all done. The swearing in is there. So I'm officially representative. <laughs> and these things are a family affair. So I do want to congratulate your husband as well. These things are a team effort. A lot of times the folks don't see that behind the scenes. That's for sure. So uh, best to him as well. Representative, thank you. We'll catch you down the road as these things uh, pop up, different issues and things and get your take on them. I look forward to it. It's always a pleasure talking with you, Gene. Thank really. you very much. I look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Today is Monday, June 28th, 2021, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. 
We have got a great slate of uh, segments and discussions for you this week on the latest episode of New Mexico in Focus. And we're going to kick things off with a discussion from our line opinion panel last week. If you missed the last episode, the line group talked about two big dates this week. Of course, tomorrow, cannabis, recreational use cannabis, officially becomes legal in New Mexico. They also talked about July 1st, which is the date to reopen New Mexico, which means getting rid of all the public health restrictions around COVID-19. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But here we'll kick things off with the Kids Count Report. This is something we talk about once a year. It is an annual study that looks at uh, factors around child well-being from teen pregnancy to child poverty uh, to educational impacts. New Mexico routinely near or at the bottom of that list. We did see improvements this year, but still we came in at 49th on that list. And that is all even before COVID, which we know made things a lot worse across the country, not just here in New Mexico. But we wanted to talk to the line opinion panel about how much good news we should take out of that jump and what are the big ideas uh, that will really make a difference in this area so we're not just hovering around those last three spots. And we'd love to hear from you on this as well. If you've got big ideas, someone threw out uh, universal income as an idea. There are municipalities, states, uh, even proposals on the national level to make sure that everybody has a baseline income. And uh, is that something you see that would have a major impact to move the needle on child well-being in New Mexico? What other ideas have you heard? And who are the people to put those ideas forward so they really gain traction? We want to hear from you. Leave us a message here or search us out on any of our social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Let us know what you think. But here now, host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. 